0: Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Today, I am joined by coaching psychologist, Glenn Whitney. Most of Glenn's 20s were spent studying, exploring and working in multiple countries around the world. By the age of 25, Glenn had studied a degree in Spanish and psychology while living in Barcelona and Pennsylvania before landing his first professional venture as a journalist. This route took him down a plethora of exciting avenues, including working at the 1986 World Cup in Mexico City, travelling to Paris, where he worked as a translator, before working as a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, where he stayed for seven years. Journalism allowed Glenn's flair for exploring to flourish, and he spent the majority of his 20s working in Germany and Switzerland, before returning to the UK at 27 as a financial and sports journalist. However, as Glenn moved into his 30s and started a family, he began to veer away from the journalist route he had paved for himself and started studying full time for a counseling and psychotherapy degree while working as an organizational consultant. Now, Glenn is a leadership and coaching psychologist working with senior business professionals and Olympic sports coaches. He has written on mindfulness and well being in the workplace, hosts the Sports Radio Coach podcast and his company CXC Consulting helps those in the business world to build a better and more healthy environment for organisations and their employees. It's pretty obvious that Glenn's gleaming resume is the type of document that many of us would drop our jaws at, and for those with the desire to work while travelling, it's probably quite a high source of envy. But it is also worth bearing in mind when looking at Glenn's success that the route to where you want to get to is never straightforward or without uncertainty, and that it's never too late to change direction. Glenn, I am so thrilled that you can join us today all the way from the States. Welcome to 20 Not Something.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: So I thought I'd kick things off by asking you the same question I ask everyone, and that is, when you were looking into your 20s decade, can you remember what the one thing you wanted the most was?
1: I wanted to work abroad. I wanted to improve my language, my foreign language skills. I wanted to work as a journalist and Get to know how the world works and be up close and be able to interview what I imagined would be important people and people who are making the news and creating the world that I was keen to be a part of
0: mm. so did you know you wanted to do journalism when you came out of uni?
1: I did. I had a very strong sense I wanted to, and when I was at university, I was very active with the college radio station i was the program director for my final year. I also did news programs and um, contributed pretty much in any way I could. Um, it, was, it seemed like a pretty, pretty active uh, part-time job. I also interned at a commercial radio station nearby. And I was a contributor, regular contributor, to the, the newspaper, um, mm. the university newspaper. So it's it's been that whole news gathering, telling stories, trying to understand what's going on. That's been a big part of me. For as long as I can remember, back when I was a child, uh, mm-hmm. one of my Christmas presents was a one of those printing presses that you, I don't think they exist anymore, but you actually had to put the rubber pieces of type in just like in the really old fashioned days. And I remember being very excited about being able to print my own newspapers. <laughs>
0: wow. That is old school. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So I guess after you left uni and you started at the Wall Street Journal, was that quite soon after? And how did that sort of come about?
1: Uh, <laughs> so the year at, in Barcelona, it's funny that the 20-something or not something uh, number comes up because I turned 20 in Barcelona. And then I did my final year of university, turned 21 at the beginning of, of that final year of university, and then I turned 22 um, in Mexico City because by the time I got back into the final year of university, it was clear to me that I wanted to continue exploring the world. I had spent about a year in Spain and then a few places, a few countries around Europe. Um, and I very much had that kind of Wanderlust type of mentality that I needed to see lots of other places. And in particular, because I, I, I was a big uh, football, soccer Player in those days, not particularly accomplished, but very enthusiastic, and also big fan. Uh, and in Barcelona, still now, but particularly in those days, um, was a huge um, football club. And I got caught up in the whole Barcelona fever. There, were, at that point, um, there was an English manager, and um, and Diego Maradona had just played for Barcelona. Gary Lineker was there. It was all a lot of hype. And um, and a, a couple of years earlier. Spain had hosted the World Cup. um, What would have that been? 1982, I think. And so I spent a lot of time listening to people saying how amazingly exciting it was to be caught up in in the World Cup. So it very coincidentally was going going to take place. The very next World Cup was also hosted by a Spanish speaking country, Mexico. So that kind of took on (laughs) the sort of 21 year old logic that, of course, I have to go to Mexico because I could then participate in the World Cup and learn more Spanish and maybe work as a journalist. And it sort of all came together. And yeah, I got very excited by all of the kind of hype and, and uh, um, just, you know, the euphoria that, you know, these major international sporting competitions create. And uh, so I had to, as soon as I finished university, um, graduated and about a week later, I was on a plane to Mexico City.
0: That's so cool. Uh, did you just go for the, like, was there anyone there who was sort of like, Oh, this is what you're going to be doing as no. in You just, <laughs> <I, the> went. <World laughs> <Cup. laughs>
1: well, the world cup was there. There, there was no doubt about it. Uh, uh-huh. so they, I knew there was going to be a lot to do uh, and lots to take in. And I had a little bit of money that various relatives gave me for my graduation presence. And I figured I'd, you know, make it last as long as I could or get a job. And in the worst case scenario, I mean, which is not a bad case scenario, but, uh, but I figured I could always teach English.
0: And then I Actually, guess you've got the travel bug, right? Yeah.
1: And I guess this is worth kind of uh, this. I tell this story to a lot of people in their twenties or late teens. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I had the, tra- I, I, I knew that I could travel and I, because i had had various experiences of it the previous year. And I knew that I would sort of figure it out. And and then life just manifested itself for me, mm-hmm. and I think this happens to a lot of people if they go in, in with a very positive mindset so on the on the uh, flight itself, I sat next to a Mexican man who recommended that I stay in a Quaker youth hostel <laughs> in the middle of Mexico City, which because I didn't have a hotel or anywhere I would was planning to stay i you know he asked me why you know what, what was I doing i was Twenty years old at the time, and um, I told him, "Well, I, you know, excited to see the World Cup, and I could do maybe this or that." Um, and he recommended this youth hostel. I checked into the youth ho- hostel, and within twenty four hours, I met one of the employees of the local English language newspaper, the Mexico City News. So <laughs> <laughs> you're joking? If I didn't go to the, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, this is like the was uh, one of my favorite little quotes about you know fortune favors the prepared. So I had done all of this journalism experience and I've done all of this Spanish language experience and, and training. But mm-hmm. the way I actually got a job at, the, the, at this English language newspaper, the daily newspaper in Mexico City, um, was coincidental. And had I not been in this Quaker youth hostel, I wouldn't have met the editor that enabled me to get the job within a, about, I would say I got the, a, a full-time job Within 48 hours of arriving in Mexico City. (laughs) And of course, I feel very lucky about that, but it wasn't, it was a series of of coincidences that I was ready for.
0: Mm, mm. Do you believe that you make your own luck or do you think that that was luck? Although, I guess if you hadn't ever got on the plane to go there, then it wouldn't have happened, would it? So,
1: yeah, no, I think you make your own luck and you have to be ready for the to seize the opportunities as they emerge. And if I had never written a newspaper article in my life, i never would have passed the little test. They gave me a kind of two day trial Mm. and I had to write a bunch of stories and I was ready for that because I had done that kind of work. Mm. But had I not been on the airplane, I wouldn't have met the Mexican man who introduced me to the youth hospital and so on and so
0: forth. Yeah, yeah. So moving through your twenties then obviously onto Switzerland and Germany, How did you find sustaining relationships, with people back home, friendships, like in that lifestyle, which is so up and down and all over the place?
1: Yeah, well, I don't think I did a very good job of it at the time. (laughs) But to be fair to me and my uh, and people my age, we're talking about the early 1990s. You didn't really have many options. You could place long distance phone calls that were very, very expensive, Mm -hmm. uh, international phone calls. So... I didn't keep in touch with very many friends. It was more making friends with the people I was working with at the time and really getting caught up in in those friendships and investing a lot in those friendships. It has of course, since been become much, much easier to keep in touch with people and to do video calls and Mm. all that sort of stuff now. But back in those days, yeah, I I let a lot of the friendships that I had that I made in my late teens kind of wither on the vine. There's one, one person in particular who I am very, Back in close touch with him. We've seen each other a few times over the last few years. And I think I corresponded with him by a face note, uh, Facebook yesterday. Um, but he asked me to be the best man at his wedding. And I was just far too busy, um, caught up in my you know young career. And I, I turned him down, which I regret.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think it's so hard to fathom when you're going through that sort of pace as well. What sort of things to prioritize? And I find that as well. Like I work in an industry which is very last minute, um, all in or nothing. Like you can't really take holiday here because it doesn't really work. And I, you know, I hate turning stuff down to do like socially, but it is one of those decisions where you're like short-term pain, long-term gain. But I can see how that going on for so long would actually be quite difficult. To come to terms with it
1: is so you you wind up with some regrets and you wind up investing a lot of time and energy in people who don't turn out to be long-term friends but in many cases that people do i i found that i'm still very close with about five or six people who i was i first became friends with in my 20s and they're still you know major resource we're a major resource to each other we still spend time together you know when we're not in sort of lockdown mode mm-hmm. um so you know these, these Friendships can be quite profound ones you make in your late teens and early
0: 20s. Yeah, for sure. I think, like, also on paper, your twenties—you know—they did look very glamorous when you sent me that timeline over. I was like, oh my god, like traveling, working, amazing, Um, and obviously writing for you know the Wall Street Journal, which is one of probably one of the most recognised publications, at least in the Western world. Um, And it it is so impressive. Did you feel that sense of success at the time, or is that something you look back on retrospectively and think, oh, I was doing really well?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I at the time, compared myself pretty much only to my direct peers. And usually and this is probably, you know, since I've become more of a psychologist since then, I can recognize that this is not a particularly healthy way of, of seeing the world. I only really compared myself to, to my colleagues who were three or four years older than me. So mm-hmm. there was this constant sense that I wasn't good enough, that I needed to aspire to more, that I was frustrated that I wasn't getting the same kinds of assignments or the same kinds of opportunities. As they were, so I was very impatient. Mm-hmm. I was, I, I was very impatient and felt that I needed to scramble all the time. And at the same time, I felt a sense of frustration that I wasn't quite good enough.
0: Mm. I can totally relate to that. I think so many people in their twenties can. And also, you know, <laughs> growing up now as well, where it's this instant gratification world. You know, we want something on Amazon, we can buy it. We want,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know, anything really. Um, so it's really interesting that you said that you experienced that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can give you a concrete example. When I was at the Wall Street Journal, my job primarily was to write day to day day to day stories about what was going on in the, the macro economy, in markets, and you know, keeping up with the sort of hard edge news of the day. And then there would be, depending on what else was going on, and depending on who my my bureau chief or main editor was, there would be opportunities to write more longer term, deeper articles which I did, and I would carve out that time. um, But it always felt like a bit of a rush and a bit of a scramble, whereas there were several reporters whose only job it was to write these deep, long, long long-form type, investigative type journalistic articles. And I was hugely hugely envious and resentful of those people. (laughs) I'm not sure that's a useful emotion, but I, I definitely remember feeling it very strongly when i was in my mid 20s i would say
0: i think like through a fairly transparent lens as well the entirety of your 20s was working you know in journalism but then you know you built towards something completely different in the end and it's something i really like to raise because you know pretty much everyone that comes on this podcast has had this profound acceptance that what i'm trying to learn that actually sometimes we're working towards something for so long and we almost feel a duty to see it through. But actually, you can go on to do something completely different. Like life doesn't end when your mm-hmm. 20s end, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> was psychotherapy and the, the counseling always something that you were passionate about? Or did that come later on?
1: Well, the psychology, the study of, of psychology and of human behavior has always been a huge interest of mine. And I, I did my, my academic major. Um, in American terms, uh, in psychology. That was my primary major and my secondary major. It was a dual major, but Spanish took a sort of second place. And when I was, even when I was in, at the University of Barcelona, I was studying a lot of psychology. I was primarily connected to the the psychology department there. So that's always been a a driving motivator of mine is to understand why human beings do what they do. And to a certain extent, to, to, to see if it's possible to change one's own behavior, or to improve one's own behavior and to, to uh, positively affect the behavior of others. But then I kind of left it aside for the most part for the, my early twenties, um, early twenties into mid twenties. And it wasn't until I had a really bad breakup, um, with a girlfriend that I suddenly revisited this possibility that psychology could be helpful. Cause I, I really needed help. I needed, um, the, the support of a counselor to kind of get through that that, that breakup. I was kind of trying mm-hmm. to do it with, with friends and colleagues. And I was doing okay, but I was definitely limping along at sort of 75% capacity. Mm-hmm. And and you know to succeed at a place like the Wall Street Journal, you really need to be working at 100% plus. And I knew I wasn't able to. So I sought out a counselor. And that was hugely helpful. Within about three or four months, it became um, really quite manageable. And then Then I got really into the whole process of understanding myself better. And Mm. in that process, I recognized that that sort of inner understanding and, and helping people understand themselves and understanding others better by by working with them as a psychologist. That became my 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 driving motivation. So rather than sort of try to understand how people what makes people tick, how they how things work from the outside, which is what journalists do, I really started to to. To have to really crave having these really intense internal type conversations, these very sensitive, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one to one conversations that you can have um, that, that psychologists have with their clients.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that is why we are put on this earth, like human connection is everything. And I think, I mean, I've got a friend at the moment who's doing a counselling degree level two, I think. And she was saying that she thinks it's so important that, you know, this stuff is taught way before that she's learning it now in her twenties. Like she wish she learned it, you know, as a teenager or even like her teachers learned it, so it could pass it on because, you know, it is so useful to be able to understand the world around us and how important it is to sit with our feelings and get through things and i think uh, you know anyone who goes to counseling will know that the first step is really really fucking hard to accept Mm. that you need that help but actually afterwards it can open you up to such like a new sort of profound view of of the world
1: absolutely it was really transformative for me and that that i that i started i guess late very late 20s early 30s is when i started to, to formally train in psychotherapy and counseling and it wasn't until um, you know, sort of having that personal crisis that brought me back into it.
0: Were you always interested? Because then I guess you went on to the sort of bringing that into sports coaching now. Um, were you always interested in sports and that sort of sports psychology element to it as well?
1: Yeah, I've always been interested in sports and um, in, in all sorts of different kinds of sports and participating in them. And I played football, soccer up to the university level, very mediocre for, for a very mediocre university. If you can imagine, it's mediocrity times squared, I guess. So, um, but it was of huge interest. And as I mentioned, I I played, I like to tell people that I I, I played uh, football at Barcelona. Um, I mean, (laughs) I played football in Barcelona. uh, So I did not, Mm -hmm. let me just clarify, I did not play for Barcelona, but I played for the the psychology department, the faculty of of psychology at the University of Barcelona. I played for Mm, that.
0: Basically big timers, right? Yeah,
1: pretty much. We were we were in the shadows of Camp <laughs> um, But, yeah, no, we were playing on a normal field that had no spectators. Um, but, you know, that part of my life has always been um, really important. More, you know, just as a hobby and, 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 and for leisure activities. And then the psychology side, as I explained, has always been part of me. But, but I didn't combine the two um, until much, much later. And that also happened accidentally. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How did that come about?
1: We're talking about uh, close to 20 years ago that the powers that be decided that that Britain needed to become more successful at Olympic sports that had that disastrous performance in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And there was a vow to fund it properly and build up, you know, sort of world leading capabilities, or at least uh, be able to compete with um, Britain's peers, like France and Germany and Italy and countries mm. like that. Um, so then lottery, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but then the, the lottery came to be and there was a, a petition for how that funding would be used. And a lot of that funding has been used to, to support elite you know, Olympic level sport. So in that whole process, they began looking to professionalize the whole learning and development and, and training side of, of coaching. So um one of the people who was in charge of that program was looking around at at who was good in this area in the world of commerce in the world of business and we fortunately were recommended um uh, to her and she interviewed us and we eventually you know jumped through various hoops um a little bit like the 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 Mexico experience because I'm I've always been very passionate about sport and I covered sport um to a lesser extent at the Wall Street Journal uh, covered the, the World Cup in 1994 and covered the European Championship, which was in in the UK. So I was, you know, well familiar with covering high-level sporting events, but from the from the journalistic perspective. So I did have a sports, something of a sports journalism background. So again, it's kind of like if you're more or less ready because you've done the the, the work, then sometimes these opportunities appear, but you have to be persistent about them.
0: Mm, and I guess then you sort of felt ready for it when it came at that time as opposed to maybe, you know, five or six years before.
1: Less unready. I wouldn't say ready for it. <laughs> I, the I know for everybody of all ages, but certainly people in their twenties, you know, there's all the element of imposter syndrome that you feel probably I mean, some people feel it at every stage of their lives. But but certainly when I when I first stood in front of Olympic level coaches to tell mm. them about leadership skills, I had no idea what their lives really were like. I've little by little figured it out by spending a lot of time on the ground and a lot of time just talking and getting deep into the, the topic. But, that, but we're talking about 15, 20 years ago, I really had no idea what I was mm.
0: talking about it's so interesting you say they pump money into it like that to sort of give it that leverage because I I love the Olympics I used to watch it all the Mm. time growing like every time it was on I remember my mum waking me up at two in the morning so I could watch the gymnastics when I was like 12 Mm. Um, and I always had so much pride in Great Britain for being such a tiny country but always coming in like just after you know US and I say just US and China and then like after that and it it did always baffle me because I was like we're we're so small in numbers in terms of you know how many good athletes there would be compared to those countries and Russia and stuff. Um, and it, it's it's really interesting that that is where it came from. You know, money. Essentially. Well, it's funny,
1: when you were when you first mentioned that I was thinking, what world were you living in that Britain was doing really well when you were a yes. child? And then I suddenly realized, oh, you're a lot younger than I. Am. <laughs> of
0: course.
1: So, so like like uh, um, the big breakthrough was was 2008 um,
0: in mm. Beijing.
1: How old were you then, if I can be so it? 2008,
0: I was 13, That's 12 years ago. Uh, 12 okay, years ago. Yeah, so yeah would, no, 12, that, 12, yeah.
1: So that that would make complete sense. That you, <laughs> that in your living memory, Britain is always doing really well. That yeah. That was definitely not the case.
0: Speaking of, you know, my my age bracket, I know that your, your kids are sort of a similar age to me, a bit younger. <laughs> um, I guess watching them grow up and entering this decade, do you see a difference in how they're approaching like work, relationships, everything um, that goes with it compared to you at that age?
1: I think they live in a much more complex world with a lot more information flying around. And you know this whole idea of being able to differentiate between signal and noise, I think is much more difficult for them than it was for my generation in their 20s. Mm. So in that sense, I feel... A little bit sorry for them, a little bit concerned. I try to help them turn down the noise, but sometimes they don't know what noise is yet, particularly yeah. the 18-year-olds. I mean, they're getting there. They're, they're, they just started university a couple months ago, um, and they know that TikTok is mostly noise. <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, there's some really good stuff on YouTube. There's some, mm-hmm. you know, TED Talks and... And you can get some real serious news and you can get documentaries that, you know, back when I was their age, weren't available. You know, Mm -hmm. you'd have to you'd have to go to a a cinema and, you know, maybe once a year you could see the the kind of material that you can see on your on your phone every night of the week. So there's there's just an overwhelming amount of information there Mm -hmm. that you have to differentiate from. Yeah. And I think that's extremely difficult um, for 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 young people uh, in their early 20s. My oldest son is 23, and I think he, you know, it, it took him several years. Most of uh, most of his undergraduate, he's now doing a, a PhD, um, and during the undergraduate, I think it took a couple of years to really figure out what 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 matters and what doesn't.
0: Mm. Before we move on to play Millennial Mindsweeper, I just wanted to mm-hmm. paraphrase something you wrote on your Mindful Your Own Business website um, that Matthew Paris wrote initially. And it really struck a chord with me because you were talking about the phrase, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Mm-hmm. And um, you paraphrased that failure is telling us something you should notice when it gets incessant. If at first you don't succeed, give it another try if you like. Give it two more tries if you must. But if you still don't succeed, get the message. Try something different, somewhere different, someone different. And I thought it was such an interesting and relevant notion, especially in today's climate when we're all taught to hustle and work really hard and get where we need to go and do it now. And it's just like, I think we're forgetting what not getting it teaches us Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and i've always been told you know if you're first you don't succeed try and try and try and i think i feel i i'm unsure and i wanted to ask you your opinion on this where do we draw the line of like hustling slash accepting a change of tack if that makes sense
1: Mm mm-hmm i think related to that is this idea of not forcing things not using sort of physical or kind of extreme mental force to make things happen that aren't happening um naturally you know whether it's at the gym or when you're cooking you know it it shouldn't feel like you have to put in a massive amount of exhausting energy to make something happen you know if, Mm. if you're moving a weight for example if you're if you're using if you're moving the right amount of weight and your body is the right sort of body for that kind of exercise then it flows it, it it's natural it doesn't feel like you might break something you know so so in the process of of trying to make things happen and you know in the mechanical world it's of course you know using a screwdriver or whatever a spanner and and not so much that you're breaking the Screws and the nuts and the bolts and all that sort of thing, which happens particularly particularly young men. I have to say, I'm not sure this is as relevant to young women as it is to young men. Is that they will just put more and more physical energy into something, mm. um, including and I and, I, and I'm going to expand this, which is going to sound a little bit bizarre, but into human relationships. Mm. If you know you're doing all the running, if you're scrambling around, if you're the person always taking the initiative, if if there's a misunderstanding, you're the only, always the person who's repairing it or trying to clarify and trying to make nice and all that sort of stuff and accommodating and making all the compromises. That's probably trying too hard. That's probably forcing it. it it's, all of those things should have a sense of flow and, and ease and kind of a natural progression to them. And if they don't have that, it's probably not the right opportunity or the right person or the right career or the mm-hmm. right even the right Assignment, if you've been given an assignment to do A versus B, and A is proven to be uh, just banging your head against the wall day after day, then let it go and, and see if you can shift over to, to project B, mm. where there would be a much more natural flow of energy and creativity and motivation.
0: Mm, yeah, I just find it really interesting because there's so many entrepreneurial books out there. You know, Jeff Bezos and mm. you know so many people who have said, you know, hustle, hustle. You will work hard. You'll work through the night. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you know if if something isn't clicking, it is okay to change direction or even just failure.
1: Well, a contradiction because if you if you're okay with working through the night and you don't resent it the next day or, mm. and you're able to do it even two days or three days in a row then that's telling you something too that you have this all this natural wellspring of energy mm. but if you're doing something and in jeff bezos case i think he was an investment analyst for quite a long time before he started to hatch his plans for amazon and he was compelled to do all sorts of late nights or all-nighters as well and and resented it because he didn't like the cause that he was working for. Mm. So that's that's the first part. The other part is that and it's you know, pretty, pretty much the standard operating procedure in, across Silicon Valley and, and lots of these high tech industries that, that the vast majority of successful entrepreneurs have already failed at several things. Mm. And, and, and they're continuing to fail. And they have this ethos of fail faster. So don't spend two years plugging away at something That may or may not work. Push it as fast and hard as you can to see if it's going to work, and then embrace the fact that it hasn't worked, and it's enabled you to move on to something else. So you failed pretty. You failed faster than the other people who are working maybe on similar projects in a similar way, and it's taken them. If it takes them an extra two years, they wasted two years, whereas you, you know, you've won by only by failing in in four or five months when it's taken some of your competitors two years
0: of fail. <laughs> I love that I'm gonna write fail faster on my ceiling now that's brilliant <laughs> definitely
1: definitely the way to go I mean and some of this stuff isn't new you have Thomas Edison who I don't know I don't remember the exact quote but it's something along the lines of I didn't I didn't I, I didn't fail I just found another way that doesn't work
0: mm.
1: and and sort of working through the process of elimination of needing to actually go through those experiments that don't work out but give you information about what doesn't work so that you can move closer for what will work
0: we're going to move on to millennial mind now All so right. i'm going to read you three quotes and you've got, to just, <laughs> you've got to determine whether you think that i have made them up as in just written them myself or found them on the internet Um, so yeah, just a bit of fun and then we can chat about it. Um, so the first one is, can the term regret actually exist as a concept? If you think about it, everything you've ever done was because at some stage of your life, it's exactly what you wanted.
1: I think somebody wise has said that it could be you as a wise (laughs) person, but that's, I'm going to go with it's out there and attributed to somebody who's written great
0: books or something like that oh my gosh I feel so complimented it was oh well done okay you came up
1: with it good
0: job I sort of thought about it as in like I was thinking about the term regret um as a concept and lots of things happened to me recently where I'm like oh I don't want to regret this I don't want to regret that and then I was thinking but actually looking back on everything I've ever done I was like well it is exactly what I wanted but do you believe that regret does exist and manifests itself in people
1: yeah i mean i think it's it's, it's an operating principle that it's a viable or or practical operating principle for some people for myself included that to think in terms of well if i have a choice between a and b which is the one that has the greatest potential for regret so if it's b then i go for b because i don't want to re- regret something later on i'm going to give you a this is—I don't know who said this, but I'm sure it's on the internet somewhere. That you know, we—the the things that we tend to regret are the things that we didn't do, not the things that we did do. Mm. So and this is a little bit superficial, but I genuinely do regret this. I was, I guess not in my twenties, but I was 19 at the time, maybe, um, and I went to Pamplona, the running of the bulls, with a, a close friend, and and he convinced me not to run with the bulls. <laughs> because that just seemed too reckless and dangerous. But I was 19 and I was in good shape. I was playing football. I should have done it. And I regret not doing it. I'm not doing it now um, because, it's, because the risk factors have risen up very, very substantially. Maybe I'll change my mind. But that's the kind of thing that if I had used the regret principle, I would have run with the bulls and I would have, I would have spent the last 30 years just smiling at the memory of, of yeah. doing what I felt I probably should have done at the time.
0: <laughs> Moral of the story, always run with the bulls. <laughs> yes. Metaphorically <laughs> or otherwise. Um our next one is many people think they lack motivation when what they really lack is clarity. Made up or on the internet.
1: Well, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it isn't made up, right? True. Apparently apparently 77% of the material on the internet has been made up, according to Abraham Lincoln. Or something like that um that's mad
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean to be fair this is an opinion i normally do facts on millennial Minesweeper, but i really liked this blog so (laughs) i'm gonna say
1: it's no i'm 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 not being i'm not playing along very well am i i think it's a totally valid statement it doesn't to a certain extent doesn't matter who said it whether it's you or somebody on the internet i think i think it's a really useful thing to keep in mind
0: Mm. yeah it was on james clear um, Wrote this for, on atomic okay. habits um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it sort of goes on to say that it's not always obvious when and where to take action some people spend their entire lives waiting for the right time to make an improvement um, I just think it's really relevant for 20 somethings in terms of you know I'm always like oh on Monday I'll start this or I'll do this and and then sometimes I won't do it and I'm like oh I'm so unmotivated and then I'm like oh no maybe I just need more clarification
1: mm. yeah so.
0: Thought it was an interesting one. And our final one is you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations through no fault of their own. They were dealt a bad hand. Totally true. Mm, yeah,
1: that's I agree. Not, that's not the um answer that you're looking for, <laughs> but that really kind of dovetails back to what I'm saying about my kids, where I, I do feel sorry for them by being overwhelmed with all of the social comparison and status anxiety that is being created by just constant um, I've heard it called the, an excess of access that just, just, we know s- way too much about people's curated lives where they presented the, the best possible moments of their lives. And we compare their best possible moments with our worst, with mm-hmm. the, our worst experiences, our worst senses of, of what's going on. And then the gap is, is really painful and, and, uh, and depressing, frankly. So, yeah, I do, I do have a lot of, a lot of compassion for that. Yeah, where we find ourselves particularly for young people.
0: Yeah, for sure. It was Simon Sinek who spoke about okay. it, and yeah, he was yeah. um It was just the way he spoke about how you know we've been raised in this world of not only the technology, but also how we've been raised, all the other factors that become involved in it. And it from an anthropological perspective, I just think it is so interesting how this generation and probably the one afterwards um has been so massively affected by this rise in social media. Um,
1: and there, you they see, that there's potentially a, an, an antidote to this, a, a technical solution. And I, I see this with a lot of my clients. My clients are all around the world now. They sort of all started more or less in London and expanded outward, and people, you know, as far afield as Southeast Asia and, and Australia. And, you know, they find themselves far from their close friends, but it has never been more it's never been easier to make an appointment and have a drink with somebody who you're really close friends with and be able to see them. And as Mm. the technology is increasingly improving to, to replicate, um, you know, virtually a sense of being in the same room and it's not quite the same, of course not, but it's so much better than even a telephone call to be able to see a smile come across your friend's face Mm. and vice versa. And, uh, and I've had some really um, magical, delightful re-encounters with some of my you know far-flung friends and and particularly people if they don't have a lot of constraints with young children and things like that, then you can make appointments to have, you know, a, a drink with somebody at two o'clock in the afternoon when it's nine o'clock in the evening their time or vice versa. <laughs> and so we have friends who may have just been acquaintances at university or kind of on the were on the cusp of becoming friends, but then university finished and we all went off and and focused on our careers and didn't have this scope to stay connected. But now we do. Mm. So anybody who's listening to this, I guarantee you that you have three or four people who probably would be really happy to hear from you. And and you could meet up this weekend for an hour or two, and it would do both of you such a world of good. Mm. And and, and exchanging messages on Instagram is just not the same. It's just not the same.
0: It's not. It's not. And it's one thing I've like, obviously, the whole world is going through bouts of lockdown at, at the moment. And um, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, we're more connected than ever. Like I can easily message someone, but it's it's just not the same feeling. And I think that is where young people, especially now, are sort of losing that ability to even sort of communicate properly. Like, it's mm. quite scary.
1: It is. But but the solution is, is so close to hand. It, in fact, mm. it's literally in your hand.
0: Mm. Well, thank you so much, Glenn, for coming on the 20 North Sunday. It's podcast. been a great
1: delight and a pleasure. You're so much fun to talk with.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad. Um, yeah, I'm glad you've had fun. It was really interesting. I love speaking to, forgive me if this sounds really condescending, but people who like their 20s were a while ago. <laughs> that's really rude, isn't it? But you know, like oh, most general, people I talk no, to no, no. in their 30s. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> and I quite yeah. like it because it is such a different experience that you went through. But I think so many things do, you know, stay the same in terms of yeah. like what we've discussed. So yeah, thank you so much.
1: Fortune favors the bold. It's actually it's a it's a, a statement that came up in a in a session I did with a client today. So that would be my final message.
0: As always, a big thanks to the composer and producer of this podcast, Pete Hat, and a huge thank you to you guys at home for listening. I love hearing your suggestions and reading your so please do keep them coming in and yeah I hope you all have a wonderful week and I will see you very soon